Well, our passage today is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. I encourage you to turn there as we continue in our month of Advent. We've been examining some often overlooked aspects of the Christmas story. And two weeks ago, we looked at Joseph's decision not to divorce Mary and explored the relationship between justice and mercy. Last week, we studied Zechariah's prophecy about Jesus as the horn of salvation and day spring from on high. And this morning, we look at the angelic announcement to the shepherds. But we're going to focus more upon the content and implications of the message rather than the specific details of the event. Would you stand as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14? This is God's holy and inspired word. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege to be able to read it, to think upon it, to apply it. Thank you for your spirit to help us to understand it. And I just pray that you would keep us attentive and hopeful this morning as we read your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, normally with this part of the nativity story, people ask questions like, why the shepherds? What was the star? And these are interesting and good questions, but I want to draw your attention to the announcement itself. Birth announcements and now gender reveal announcements have become pretty elaborate these days. Some are more creative. I've seen and been at whole parties devoted to the surprise moment of discovering whether it will be a boy or a girl, and the creativity goes from insides of cakes or cupcakes being colored pink or blue to uh, breaking balloons that have a particular color confetti and so on. But I'll tell you a way to outdo all of those announcements, and that is to have an angel announce the birth. Have an angel appear before your friends, and then as the angel finishes the announcement, have a whole choir of angels appear and provide backup, right? Well, the first thing the angel of the Lord said was, fear not. Don't be afraid. And at first glance, the fact that the shepherds were afraid, were terrified, is not too surprising and I assume that anyone who sees something as extraordinary as an angel would be afraid, would be terrified. But there is more here. In the Bible, people always experience traumatic anxiety and fear when they come near to God. Or even near to the angels who come out of his presence. And it all goes back to that original experience that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden when they hid themselves from God. If you think about the, the contrast between those two times... Prior to sinning, Adam and Eve had no reason to fear God. There was, there was no terror as God came and walked in the midst 
of the garden and spoke with them, fellowshiped with them. They enjoyed that every day, but the moment that their sin separated them from the holy God, they became afraid. The same thing happens with the shepherds. It's not simply a fear of the unusual. There's also this radical threat of the holy. And when Isaiah saw God in a vision, he was rightly terrified. When Ezekiel saw the glory of God, he fell on his face as though he were dead. And when John saw the glory of God, he too had the same response as Ezekiel. When God's glory appears, and our message says, our passage says that the glory of the Lord shone around all of them, it always intensifies this fundamental fear. But the angel has a surprising message, especially if you think about what it means. You should not be afraid, he says. Do not fear. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Because I bring you good news. Now, putting these comments together suggests that the good news is the solution to our fear. It's the kind of gospel that fixes the source of our fear. That's what I want you to understand. The angel saying, do not fear, is saying that I have news that is going to fix it so that you do not have to fear anymore. You can once more be like Adam and Eve. And that is, I'm going to fix, the good news says, that the Lord says, I'm going to fix the separation between you and the shame of your sin and me and my holy presence. So this isn't just an announcement by a proud parent, if you will, about the mere fact of a baby's birth. This is the announcement of a purposeful birth. Jesus came to put an end to fear. He came to finally and totally pay the penalty for sin. And after his substitutionary sacrifice, everything would change. That's, that's the implication of this message. The sacrificial system under which thousands of animals were sacrificed every year. The temple, the priesthood, everything. All the trappings of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, everything around them that shouted this message of separation. All of that was going to change. And so no wonder that this moment is announced by an angel, even though, realize, angels had not been seen in over 500 years by anyone except for Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph. And so you can hang on every word of, of the angel to the shepherds. Born for you. Think about that. This is an angel from heaven, born for you. Me? In the city of David, as long promised. They're saying that this baby, like I said, is going to be the answer, not only to their fear, but the permanent solution to the fall. He is Christ, the foretold Messiah from Isaiah and the rest of the prophets. This is simply the most monumental, life-changing long-expected and hoped-for announcement ever given to man. Not only had an angel not been seen for 500 years, but the last time the glory of God had been seen. I don't know if you, if you were playing Bible trivia, could you answer that question? When was the last time prior to 
this moment that the glory of God had been seen? And the answer is in Ezekiel. And if you know from Ezekiel 8 through 10, you know what happened in that moment. Ezekiel describes as he watches the glory of God go up from the temple over the mountain and disappear. It's one of the saddest moments, actually, in the scriptures. Uh, Because here had been the Holy of Holies in which the Shekinah glory of God had had come upon and, and settled upon the Ark of the Covenant, right? And yet, because of Israel's sin, Ezekiel says, I saw the glory of God go up and out into the distance and over the mountain. He was gone. And the glory of God had not come back until this night. God was present once more with his people. But why here at this moment, you ask? As I said earlier, I don't plan to focus on the shepherds, but let me just give you a quick answer to that question. The shepherds weren't royalty. They certainly weren't important in the world's eyes. Bethlehem is a small village of a few thousand people. It certainly wasn't a place like New York City or Jerusalem, for that matter. So the king of kings is born in obscurity, he's born in humility, and nobody would have guessed this except that God had said he would do it. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach the good news to the poor. And that word poor, in this case, could equally be translated humble or lowly, And who were the lowliest of people on the social scale of Israel? They were the shepherds. And this is the ones to whom the good news is first preached, the shepherds. And so in this magnificent way, this momentous event, 500 years the glory of God had been gone, 500 years an angel had not been seen or heard from, God illustrates from the very beginning that he plans to exalt the humble. His salvation is particularly for the meek, particularly for the afflicted and the captive and the prisoner, because he is the Lord of the outcasts. He is the healer of the brokenhearted. And that means you and I have hope. If the angel announcing Jesus' birth to shepherds in a field at night is not a metaphor and an illustration for God saving sinners, then what is? And so if we go back to the angelic announcement where we read, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. We hear that, those words, and, and we need to focus on them so that we understand that when they say a baby, that had to have stuck out, right? Angel, you'll find a baby, an infant, a newborn child, Totally ordinary word. And yet in that great announcement, there's something profound. And that is that Emmanuel, God with us, came into the world just as we all do. And even though we often speak of the virgin birth, it should be remembered that the real miracle occurred at the moment of conception, nine months before the birth, right? Right? Jesus' actual physical birth was completely normal. Or as normal as it could be given the unique circumstances. But to say that Christ is born as a baby 
brings us face to face with the truth of the incarnation. Although he was fully, truly God from all eternity, the Son of God took on true humanity when he was conceived in Mary's womb and born in Bethlehem. He's not half God and half man, but fully God, fully man. He did not cease to be God, although he laid aside the glory of his deity for a time. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. And in some way mysterious to us, the Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man. Two natures joined together in one person. And that is the central truth of Christianity and of Christmas. The Son of God did not break into the world like the angels even and retain all power and privilege. The shepherds falling back, terrified the presence of the angels, but Jesus, Son of God, incarnate, human form as baby. And he did that in order to be like us in every way, to be tempted like us in every way, and yet not sin. And everything else flows from that truth. If, if Jesus had not been born, he could not have died for our sins. Many battles have been fought over that basic truth in the first centuries. Actually, the battle raged over whether Jesus was actually genuinely human. That was the first battle. Did he really become man? Maybe he just appeared to be man. Some said no, but then listen to the Apostle John's response in 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit, that every soul, right, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh... So it's very important to confess that is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Well, today the debate tends to be in the opposite issue, which is whether he was fully God. Few people today now deny that Jesus was a man, but many now deny that he was also God. And they believe teacher, leader, even a man sent from God, but they don't believe, as the creeds say, very God of very God. In his gospel, John writes this in John 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. All familiar words to you, I'm sure. But think again about what they say. And the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then down in verses 10 through 14, John writes, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Such familiar words. And we don't have time to unpack all of these statements by John. I'll leave to another day to explore what it means to be the word, or for the word to be with God and be God. What I want to note is that John says that the word was in the beginning, that all things were made through him, all life is sustained by him, but that that word became flesh. 
And in John, that word sarks for flesh is pink, meaty, skin, muscle, blood, bone. Could there be any greater contrast in John between the infinite word and the finite flesh? Transcendent, imminent, eternal, temporal, not the flesh even of a full-grown, powerful man, but the pink, newborn baby skin flesh. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. The word rejected by the very people whose lives he had made and sustained, and worse, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And that is a sad irony, is it not? And so we understand the magnitude of the narrative later in Luke when he describes how Jesus' parents took him as an eight-day-old boy, as an infant to the temple. Here is the radiance of God's glory, as Hebrews would say, right? The very perfect reflection image of God in human form made manifest in flesh Here is the Shekinah glory, the glory that had departed, according to Ezekiel. Come back in Jesus, in this little child, carried into the temple, and the priests and the visitors there, everyone looking that direction towards where the Holy of Holies was standing empty. And yet saying, that's where God's glory is. Or may one day come back to But here in front of them, in the midst of the people, in the midst of the court of the Gentiles, no less, is laying in the arms of a young woman, or in his father's arms, the Holy of Holies. Sink in at all, just the amazing strangeness of how God works. Now the Jews, of course, they don't believe that. The Muslims Don't believe that. They say Jesus was a great prophet sent by Allah. They vigorously deny he's the son of God. The Hindus don't believe it in their religion. Jesus might be a God, one among millions, but they don't believe that he was and is the only son of God who was God manifest in flesh. But this is what we believe. And this verse teaches us that the Lord from heaven entered this reality, this earth, as a tiny, helpless baby. And they take time to describe him even as being wrapped in cloth, which highlights his helplessness. One author has written, the creator who populated the forests with trees lies within the bark of one. The one who had always been face to face with his father now stares into the face of his young mother. The eternal whom the heavens cannot contain was bound in cloths so that he could not move. He who cradled the universe was himself cradled in a manger. I think, honestly, that this helplessness of a baby also foreshadows Jesus' later life when he stands bound, guarded as if he were a common criminal, When he's falsely accused, he makes no reply. When he's reviled, he doesn't return evil for evil. He stands before his accusers, awaiting the verdict that will end his life, and then marched off to Golgotha, nailed to a cross, 
It's no coincidence in my mind that he entered the world the same as he left it. Helpless, bound, if you will. And all of this adds to the irony of Christmas. None can say that the Son of God used his heavenly prerogative to make an easy entrance into the world. He was bound so that we might be set free. Realize, though, that when the angels tell the shepherds to behold, they're saying, look at something. And they say, behold, there's a sign. And what is that sign? It is a sign that Paul explains in Philippians 2 when he writes that God the Son emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It's a sign that Jesus himself lives out in John 13 when he, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, wrapped in a towel, wiping his disciples' feet. What are, what's in common between those two besides just cloth? What's in common between those two is that Jesus takes the form of a servant. And I think these images overlap, but even if you don't, don't you see a whole string of paradoxes that the Lord, the Lord, humbled himself. It wasn't that what, it wasn't what he laid aside that humbled him, but what he took upon himself that humbled him. He was born in the likeness of men. And the fact that God was born in, incarnated into flesh as a baby is meant to seem to us as if it is humbling, but don't lose sight of the fact that God took, God the Son took the form of a servant by becoming a man, period. Don't get distracted by the baby. The baby is just a, the baby is the natural process, and the baby is probably the most profound glimpse of helplessness and servanthood, if you will. But the fact that he even just became a man was becoming a servant. To be God, then to become man, to die as a stranger, to bear the curse of the law, that is the humility of Christmas. And if that doesn't strike us, then we're supposed to see it even more clearly in that humility of the manger, is what I'm saying. And so when the angels say, look, this is a sign, What I want you to see the sign is, is God has become a servant. He's become a servant because that's the only way he could save. And that takes faith, doesn't it? To see the majesty of Christ in Christmas in the humility of a servant. Faith is the gift of God, is the evidence of things unseen. Everyone sees a baby. Right? All the nativity pictures, Christmas cards, all of those see a baby in a manger. What do we see? 
we see the Lord. We see a servant. Everyone saw a young carpenter from Nazareth. We see the Son of God and the hope of the nations. Without faith, it is impossible to see God, to know God, or understand the things of God. But when we look at it through the eyes of faith, we see this is exactly what had to happen. Spurgeon once preached this, the scene at Bethlehem is one of utter simplicity. A mother, a father, a baby, thus was the word made flesh to dwell among us. And what God does is both simple and clear, he says, and the message to us is also simple and clear. Those who come in simple faith to the Lord Jesus Christ find great peace. We need once again to preach the plain man's gospel, free of speculation, centered upon Christ. Now the last thing that happened that night amongst the shepherds was that there was an angelic choir that sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I don't know how many angels there were that night, but if one angel was amazing, you can imagine a multitude. Whenever you see the word in the gospel, where that word multitude, it's always describing crowds, such as the crowds that pressed in around Jesus. And we know there were hundreds, thousands. You can imagine hundreds, thousands of angels. And the angels sing that God has brought peace through a Savior to those with whom God is well pleased. And the natural question is, what type of people please God? Well, the rest of the scriptures say that the ones who please God are the ones whom he has chosen to say, show his favor. But I like in particular that he shows his favor to the lowly, to the downcast. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, to the weak, to the ignorant, to the despised. And if you are one upon whom God's pleasure and favor rests, then you too will one day join the angels in singing this song. Because according to Revelation, the angels still sing it. Not just on that night before the shepherds, but as Revelation 4 and 5 describe the myriads of angels... Not just a multitude, but myriads together will all saved humanity surround the throne and sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's hardly a better way to sum up what God was about when he created the world or when he came to restore, reclaim the world in Jesus Christ than to say that it resulted in his glory and our joy. Even though God will still be glorious if you don't recognize that glory, the angel's announcement invites you, in fact, directs you to recognize it. Glory to God in the highest. God's promises become real for you. They produce peace in you and through you when you believe them. And that's true whether we are talking about peace with God or peace with yourself or peace with others. The more we contemplate that mysterious, surprising, wonderful event of a baby bound in cloth, lying in a manger, the more we are led to ask why. And this is where God's glory truly comes in. We've already learned part of the answer. Salvation doesn't just come to the elite. God is full of surprises. God saves through being a servant. We are dead in our sins. But let me give you another part of the answer. 
by asking a related question. What would motivate God to go through extreme lengths that we've talked about today? Becoming a man, starting as a baby, serving us, die on a cross. Whenever you see people do the unexpected or unusual, it's always natural to ask why they thought that kind of radical action was necessary. And that's where the Christmas story becomes the worst news ever. God had to invade our world in the person of Jesus Christ because there was no other way to save us. And why was there no other way? That's the worst part of the news. That's the bad news. There is no other way because our big problem in life is not familial or historical or social or political or relational or ecclesiastical or financial or any, you know, any other word that you put in there. The biggest, darkest thing that all of us have to face the reality that somehow, some way influences everything we think, say, and do isn't outside us. The problem is inside. If you had an external problem, you could potentially run away from it or change it. You'd still be in grave danger, but you could get away from it. You can run from a bad relationship. You can quit a bad job. You can move from a dangerous neighborhood. You can leave a dysfunctional church. But you have no ability whatsoever to escape yourself, no matter where you run. You and I simply have no ability to rescue ourselves from the greatest danger that we face. Without the birth of Jesus, we are doomed. And you don't need to look far in the Bible to see what that danger is. Its stain is on every page of Scripture. Romans 3 exposes it with a few simple, well-known words. What is it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality is our sin in the face of God's glory. That's the bad news of the Christmas story. It tells us that Jesus knew, tells us that the Lord knew that even if we were aware of the great danger within us, And even that didn't become evident until God awakened our heart to recognize it. But even if we had been aware of the great danger within us in our own wisdom and strength, we would not be able to save ourselves. Sin is the ultimate undefeatable enemy, at least for us. And if you're like me, you have trouble believing that bad news. When you do something wrong, you probably try to blame it on stress or sickness or a bad employer or a troublesome spouse a challenging child, just plain circumstances, physiology, psychology, whatever it may be. When others come to point out a wrong to you, your initial response is probably not to be thankful. Usually it's to jump to your own defense because it's hard to believe that you're a sinner and that they're describing something that in any way resembles you. So I want to encourage you this Christmas Christmas time to accept the bad news of the Christmas story because if you do, the good news becomes all the more comfortable, or comforting, not comfortable, comforting and glorious. The Christmas story tells you that you've been freed forever from minimizing the danger that you are in because Jesus went to such radical, humbling, surprising lengths to rescue you, to forgive you, to transform you, to ultimately deliver you. That baby in the manger had everything that sinners need. 
And it's only when you admit that need. I mean, how more humbling is it for you than to recognize that you need a baby? And realize that God chose to do that for you. He chose to become a servant and to suffer. And every moment of it was done with purpose because as the angels say, this is what God had promised. There's nothing wrong with shiny ornaments and bright lights. Your celebration of what Jesus willingly did for you should be a a time, this should be one of the most joyful times of the year. And you should ultimately be like the shepherds, abounding in wonder, praising and glorifying God. But do me a favor, and that is celebrate this Christmas time the blessings that you have received. One of the best of those being the gift of a baby. Give gifts, but remember that the greatest gift of all was given to you by the one who was willing to humble himself and take on the form of a servant. Eat wonderful food, but let it remind you of the lavish spiritual food that God prepares for you. Reflect upon the love of God. The glory of God was that he would come near to us, Emmanuel, so that we might come near to him. Is it any wonder that We will throw our undeserved crowns at his feet. Oh, how deep and vast is the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of Christmas and what it means for us. The fact that you were willing to become a servant And the angels pointed the shepherds to that great sign, that strange sign that was there in Bethlehem, which was a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. The simplicity of it, the poverty of it, the helplessness of it, and yet the glory of it in its profundity that the great creator, the word made flesh, should enter into helpless humanity and serve us. That he should come in that way and that he would leave in that way, bound before men, wrongly accused, taken to the cross, killed as a common criminal and yet to be without sin, all so that he might serve and save. And Father, as we think upon those things, I pray that it truly would be our response to say glory to God in the highest. It's the type of profound paradox that makes even the angels wonder at what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas and for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.